I'm here with Amanda Brock, the CEO of Open UK. How are you doing today, Amanda? I'm doing great, thank you. And thanks very much for having me along. Ah, we're glad to have you. So welcome to the Haas Talks Foss podcast. We, we, we like to highlight all of the awesome things happening in open source. And we know that you have a deep background in the open source space. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came into the open source uh, area? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I joined a, I would have said a small company, but actually now quite a big company called Canonical, February 2008. I was employee 165 back in the day. And I went into Canonical as a, a lawyer with a commercial, corporate commercial background. I'd done quite a lot of tech work, but I didn't know so much about open source. And I, I joined Canonical to set up the legal team, to run the legal team, and then sort of spent five years falling in love with open source and learning every day something new about it. So wait, so coming from the commercial space into yeah. open source, that's yeah. a rough move. I remember my first experience in the open source industry, and especially having come into a company like MySQLIB, it was so open. It was so like transparent. It was scary, you know, those first few, you know, months. I mean, I don't know, from a legal perspective, I can only imagine. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I, uh, we had a few incidents in my first few months there where, frankly, somebody would publish what a normal company would have kept proprietary and quiet and internal or advice I'd given even. And I'd be sitting there going, you know, just somebody explain to me what the hell has just happened here. Why did he do that? And um, it was a very, very steep learning curve. And to be honest, over the time I was there, I spent more and more of my time teaching other lawyers and trying to engage with uh, commercial people who are procuring open source to take them on that same journey to get them to understand. You sort of have to unlearn the things that you've been taught to learn the new. You don't look convinced. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, you really do. You really do. So even if you think about copyright, copyleft, you know, copyleft is a pun on copyright. And it's kind of the opposite, the mirror image of what you've been taught as a lawyer. So you really have to develop an open mind and try to look at things differently. And I think it's not just for open source. I think the current the current state of play in the digital economy, if you really want to understand it, being open to new ways of doing things and alternative models and revenue streams, et cetera, is absolutely critical. Yeah, absolutely. And I know like, you know, there's there's not only the legal aspects, there's the cultural aspects, there's just getting used to that environment. I had a similar case. I remember the first day when I was at MySQLAB, they were having the debate on going open core or not. And it was in mm -hmm. a company-wide distribution channel, you know, where email was flying back and forth and the CEO was being called all kinds of funny names. Um, you know, and I was like, oh my God, who's going to get fired on my first day? Yeah, and nobody yeah, got yeah. fired. And it was that open kind of like, you know, collaboration, that openness. Um, but you, you know, you saw that, you know, even back then the movement to open core to try and do that monetization strategy. Mm -hmm. And that really became the de facto standard for a long time where you had GPL, then you had an enterprise version that was under a more, you know, restrictive commercial license. Uh, and now that's started to evolve and change a bit more. So now we're starting to see us delve into other alternative licensing. And a lot of it is coming from the cloud, according to a lot of the vendors. 
Um, yeah. And I don't know if I buy that 100%, but I'm curious on what your take is there. Do you know, I've just written a book chapter on this topic about commercialization and revenue models and open source. Yeah, I don't think you knew that. Um, so we have a I book did. coming out in September, and it has the very catchy title of Free and Open Source Software, Law, Policy, and Practice. Um, oh, okay. Oh, I know, I know. It says what it does. It says what it does in the tin. Um, but it's quite exciting because it's a second edition. I'm the, the name on the cover as the sole editor, something that won't happen twice because I had no conception of how much work that was going to be. Um, you know, next time there'll be multiple names. But it's been a really interesting journey. And one of the most exciting things about the book is it's open access. So when that comes out in September, we'll be sharing loads of information around the legals of open from many of the, the leading experts, but also this stuff and community and governance and open chain and all that good stuff. So I'm rambling on about the book and not answering your question. For me, when I started to think about my chapter, I'd written the same chapter nearly 10 years ago for the first edition. And a lot of the authors were really lucky. They could just update bits and pieces. I had to start from scratch because it is entirely different. You know, if you look back at 2008, I think it was 451 had done a report about open source. They'd included companies like Oracle, so it wasn't true open. And I think they looked at 144 companies and they were talking about the models and what worked. And there's a very limited range of models that would work, right? If we're really honest about it. And then I had joined Canonical around that time. I think the report came out end of 2008 and it was part of my learning curve, but Whilst I was in Canonical, there was this big shift, and the shift was obviously cloud. And my view is that we were one of the first companies that went through that. So there's a chap called Simon Wardley was our cloud director. And we went almost overnight with Simon's lead from a very small percentage of the cloud instances to being over 70%. And it was just about overnight. Do you think our revenue shifted in the same way? No, we hadn't planned our model to build it around that infrastructure. And it was a, a bit of a surprise, I guess. And a lot of the conversations you hear about trademark and things now, those are very specific to one particular instance, one particular case of an organization in the cloud. You know, the merits of that case are something entirely different. But if you look at your trademark and if you look at the services that are provided around open in a, a sort of on-prem environment or an enterprise environment, it's entirely different, right? You've got a whole load of um, add-ons that you can sell up or upsell. You've got a whole load of different sort of configuration, implementation type pieces that you can work on, um, even basic support, which you just don't need in that cloud environment. And it made a massive shift in the models and in the, the industry, I think. But it's not something that's new. We were seeing that back in 2010, so 11 years ago. And the, the report that came out and became sort of the industry standard explaining what those business models were, it was uh, widely distributed. It was at all the conferences like Eclipse and stuff back in the day. You know, people knew what the range of business models were and there'd be debates about things you could add, but they always fell under the same categories, whether it was support, whether it was engineering services, subscription, which is slightly different. So I don't think anybody should have been massively shocked in 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, to find that cloud uses open source in a different way. 
And why, you know, like when you talk about that, that, and, you know, you, you mentioned that mm -hmm. there's only a few models that you see that actually work. Mm. Can you, you know, maybe expand and like, tell us a little bit about what those models are that you've seen yeah. be successful. Yeah. I know we, we have one of them, but I'm curious, yeah. um, you know, so from your perspective. You, you sometimes now you hear about abundance and ubiquity. So what really happens for open source is that you have this opportunity to scale. I think HashiCore talked brilliantly about it where they talk about setting up a project, never really meaning to set up a business, and then suddenly it scales into something huge. And it does that because you've got the engineering community, the world has shifted, the, the developer has a different role, the engineers will go and procure direct, except they don't have to procure. They just go and help themselves in a GitHub or a GitLab environment. That open repo piece changes everything and allows them to bring without going through the traditional and often restrictive procurement processes open into a business. So you have this massive, particularly early stage opportunity to build. I mean, the scale of something like Kubernetes could never have been achieved without it being open. I think everybody would acknowledge that. But then you've got to work out, how am I going to generate revenue behind it? And it tends to be three or four things, and those tend to be add-on engineering services, building something to give a first mover advantage, looking at traditional support and looking at subscription. And both Red Hat and Suze would tell you they're subscription-based, which um, I think is interesting. So you have the, the biggest company in the world in terms of open source, biggest tech transaction in history with Red Hat, definitely subscription. I've always said that I thought they were a unicorn because they, they followed that model for such a long time. And they're so close to the kernel that there's a sort of stickiness there that I wasn't mm -hmm. sure anybody else could have. Whereas Suze will tell you that they're doing the same thing. And I've, I've never gotten deep enough into it to know whether I could challenge that, but it looks like they probably are. And they're now the biggest independent open source company. So I think that the ultimate model, if you can get into that subscription position is definitely subscription. Because once it's in there, it's in there, right? It's just going to keep renewing. It's just going to keep ticking over. I think support and engineering services, um, bespoke engineering services are much harder to sell. But there's also, in the last decade, something that I think really works for open, and that's building the infrastructure on it. So when you can get these massive collaborations in place, um, I think Marco Bohm, the economist, describes them as continuous, non-permanent, non-differentiating collaborations. So you get a bunch of companies together, they want the same end goal, they work on that same end goal, they bring together engineers, they bring together finance, and they create something that they don't need to differentiate on. Effectively, they're out doing the standards bodies, right? And they're creating a de facto standard. And I think that de facto standard is the one of the, the main pieces that we're gonna see going forwards. And then there'll be a bunch of things around it probably not far off the kind of CNCF model that we've seen, where you have a core piece of technology that's critical, and then a family that supports that. And when you have that family, there's opportunities for the organizations that are building those individual pieces, either to upsettle them into something bigger, like we saw with Rancho and Suze, or maybe to build their own revenue streams and continue separately but probably around that kind of support piece, which is definitely hard on the cloud. Now, going back yeah. to your original question of cloud, and stop me if I'm rambling too long about this, but that cloud piece is really where the, the revenue at the moment is. 
and that's where all the controversy has been. So I'm going to let you ask my, your question and then I'll come back to what I was going to say to you. about. Climate. Well, I was going to actually expound on that. So it's good. So, you know, because, you know, you mentioned that this this the shift in the cloud and, you know, you could see it coming in as early as 2010 uh, and it really started to pick up steam in 2016. Um, but yeah, it is the de facto revenue model. And there's a couple of things, especially from a legal point of view, that that continue to go back and forth, right? Uh, you see that a lot of, and it's especially in the database space, that the vendors are saying, you know, oh, uh, these cloud providers are strip mining open source. They're not contributing back. But the licensing allows people to run these as a service. And that's where a lot of these license changes, whether it's SSPL, BSL, um, you know, the, the commons, you know, clause. I mean, there, there's many different ways that they've tried to get around this over the years. I think even starting with AGPL uh, to try and, you know, prevent this as well. You, you, mm -hmm. You've seen this evolution where, you know, I, I liken it to really a, 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 a big money grab personally. But, you know, while the market has shifted towards people wanting easier access to their technology stack, developers being more in charge to be they want to be able to control that and so the cloud enables that that easy access to that technology you you see that these other vendors have provided the the tools but don't know how to monetize it you know because yeah. as you said the support model doesn't really work even the subscription model is a little more mm -hmm. difficult in the cloud because the cloud providers like to say it's fully managed yeah. it you know you don't have to do anything you never have to buy a support contract ever again uh, mm -hmm. So it it does create that friction point. Absolutely. Uh, and and so how how do you see that like now? It's you know with, with that that kind of structure kind of taking forward mm -hmm. uh, place where you've got the cloud providers providing the service that people want, but they're doing it with licenses that they're allowed to do it, but these other vendors don't know how to monetize. They don't know how to fix yeah. that. Yeah. So I think that it, there's a whole load of stuff from what you've just said to unpackage. And if we start with the licenses, I'm glad you're acknowledging that the licenses allow it because that's been one of the debates and um, pressure points in this whole conversation. And I think I would say that open source was never designed to be a business model, right? It wasn't. It's a methodology, no, it's a social movement, it's all sorts of things, but nobody ever said, here's a business model, take it. Um, when I left Canonical, I worked in a law firm for a couple of years and I, I was too early stage, which is why I didn't stay. And I was too early stage because all I wanted to do was open source. And people would come to me and they'd say that they wanted to build an open source business. And I would explain to them that if they release their code open, somebody else can take it and use it. How do you feel? You know, there's this... Even amongst really good lawyers, I hear this misconception all the time, and I think it comes from Creative Commons where you can have non-commercial and you can have a Creative, li a Creative Commons license that allows documentation, etc., to be used, but not for commercial purposes. And that really serves academia well, but it doesn't exist in open source, and it, it sort of goes against the grain and the whole point and purpose of open source to do that, because you can't different, you can't... Um, the word's gone. Uh, you can't discriminate against somebody for a field of use or a technology. You have to make it open for everybody. So even if you're trying to do it with good intentions, you cannot discriminate. And we've seen discussions about ethical licensing, that kind of thing. So it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, you still can't do it. So what that means is if you're a business person, 
you go through, if you're sensible, the what if conversation that I would have. And my conversation was, what if you release this open and someone else uses it? What if you release it open, someone else uses it and makes a ton of money? And you can see their lip begin to tremble. You know, they weren't quite so happy about that as a business model. And it's what if that happens and you make nothing or they find a better way of using it and they take your code. And you have to have the stomach for it to get into the game. If that's, you know, you have to know what your revenue model is and be confident that that's going to work if you're going to open source your code and you want to make money out of it. Right. Yeah, and so I think bottom that, line. And I think this is where it's it's interesting. So I think that there are many companies out there who the founders might actually get into the open source market and, and choose an open source license because it does fit their personal beliefs. But I think as soon as the investors start rolling in, that's where I think the problem runs, you know, headlong into the business problem issue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I've seen this where, you know, from an investor perspective, investors see the download numbers, they see the audience, the reach of some of this open source. And look, I've got 10 million downloads this month. How can I monetize that? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that that's the, the, the kind of process people go through from an investor perspective. And it goes against the grain when you're talking, you know, from the pure open source side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was on a, a panel with uh, Gradle's founder and he made the interesting point that nobody should tell you you can't make money. And I totally agree with him. Right. And if open source is a way that you think you can make money or you can make it fit, and lots of companies do, that's great. Obviously, the more investment you take as a, a startup, the more you're diluting how many, you know, that the bread at the table is being diluted amongst many of you at that stage. And the more investment there is, the more people want a bit of that, that loaf. Um, I think that that is the driver for a lot of the issues. But I, I don't think it is a sustainable model to see companies continuously having investment and letting their communities down. And you would have seen the, the same response as I did to Elastic. And we probably need to go in a bit more detail about that um, to go back to your questions about licensing. But what Elastic did was they have shifted from the Apache license, open source, to the SSPL license. Now, I've been ticked off on Twitter or calling SSPL proprietary, <laughs> which I thought was really funny because there's these big proprietary companies who are quite happy being proprietary and have made a lot of money out of it. You know, I don't think they consider it a dirty word. It's only a dirty word if you've been disingenuous and you've allowed people to believe you're open. So if everybody is honest, if everybody's straightforward, if everybody has their cards on the table, it's not a problem. You choose to be proprietary, you're proprietary, you choose to be open, you're open. Where I think the problem has come is for whatever reason, and you could be right, it could be that the founders thought it was fine when they started, but there is a shift with VC investment. Where that problem comes is when you can't generate revenue because others are able to use your code for free. And that's not, it is an open source issue, but if you go back to the strip mining you were talking about, and you look at the New York Times piece on that from, I think it was December 2019, Yep. And I was really surprised to see that because to me it was like, hey, open source is in the New York Times. But if you read the article, it doesn't actually talk about open source particularly. It's talking about the service layer in the cloud environment and small companies not getting to sit at that table, not getting their share of that service layer. 
Now, um, Matt AC has been talking a lot about a third way. I would call it public source. I think others call it shared source, where you can have code that is open, but is not open source. So it doesn't have an open source license, doesn't meet the open source definition, isn't on an OSI approved license. Right now, that is proprietary. There is no way around it. So if you wanted to create this third way, as I've said to Matt, you would have to go in and create a movement, create the licensing, get engagement. It's going to cost a lot of money and somebody's going to have to drive it. And I actually think what we're going to see is something totally different. I don't see anybody actually starting that process. There, you know, There's a lot of talk about SSPL and things, and we'll come back to that in the Commons Clause. But I think what's actually more likely is that this isn't just an open source problem that we're taking on. What's happening is the service layer is closed. That's where you get lock-in if you're a cloud vendor. It's where you get lock-out if you're a small company trying to engage with customers in the cloud space. And I think we'll see the regulators looking at it in the next 12 months. They've spent a lot of money and a lot of time working out how the revenue streams flow. And you know, bit by bit, you were seeing them moving towards it. But I don't think it will take the regulators. I think the cloud companies are really smart. They're really astute. You don't scale businesses the way they have without knowing what's coming around the corner. And I suspect that we will see them increasingly opening that up. And I know that Google, I think it was April 2019, they started doing deals where they revenue share. Um, yep. I believe Absolutely. Amazon did one, AWS did one with Grafana in the run up to Christmas. Yep. I yep. believe there are more. I haven't seen names behind those, but I suspect it will gradually open up in that collaborative way in the sort of model that we're used to as collaborative open source people, because if it doesn't, it will be forced. And actually, the whole third way and the public source, shared source thing will go away because it won't be relevant anymore. Um, when I first started to deal with this, I did think, and I, I publicly said, we should go back and look at the OSD and look at revisiting it. Um, because I'm pretty open-minded, right? And I don't think, you know, Bruce Perrins did not come down from a mountain with a tablet with the OSD carved on it. But there are millions and millions of people relying on that as a certainty. And I think it was Deb Bryan at Red Hat, who's on the OSI board, who first said it to me, you know, this is really dangerous thinking, Amanda. And I went off and I thought long and hard about it. And she's right. It doesn't make sense to shift it. It just would create a ridiculous level of problem. But the reason I mention that is it's not like people haven't thought about it. And I right. tried to engage with the, there's a group of open source lawyers. There's not that many of us in the world. You'd be surprised to hear, but we all know each other and there is a group and we discussed it and there just wasn't interest. You know, people don't want to go off and build it. Maybe Matt and others will go and raise money to do, I don't know, but I, I think the, the concept will be redundant before it even starts. Yeah, I think I think sometimes these ideas float in and out just to see what kind of traction or uptick they can get. Um, I, I mean, I don't I don't see that as gaining popularity. And I, I think really from an SSPL perspective, that's what they're trying to do is, oh, this is source available. It's kind of it's, yeah. they're trying to try and make it that way. Yeah. Um, and I know that there's some other funky licenses that people have come up with that uh, that don't fit that. But I wanted to get back to something that you said about, you know, um, you know, the, the, this push and, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the vendors saying, you know, hey, eventually they will collaborate. And I, I agree completely just because let's be honest, the revenue that 
you know, Mongo or Elastic has made because the cloud is there is greater than they would have made without the cloud. Yeah. They require one another to yeah. work together and be collaborative in the future. Right. Yeah. It's just, they have to licenses aside, right? Like they, they, they wouldn't have been as successful without each other. And so I think that that codependency will, will, will drive things. And hopefully my hope is that the next generation of open source developers don't look at an SSPL or don't look at, you know, more proprietary licenses as the de facto standard and then start yeah. their projects with it. That's the yeah. danger right now, in my opinion. Yeah. But you mentioned th th this idea behind revenue. And I did a FOSDEM talk on uh, the death of openness and freedom, you know, where I see open source being under attack. Um, and in, in that, I talked a little bit about the revenue side and I talked about shareholder value trumps all. Mm -hmm. But it, it's interesting because, you know, the argument when you talk about, you know, oh, well, these, these open source vendors are not seeing the money that they, that they need or they're not getting a piece of the pie. Here's the thing. They're making money. They're making yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars. It's just not enough to satisfy investors. And I think that's a, that's a key thing because it's not like any of the executives at any of those companies are starving. <laughs> it's not like, you know, they're struggling artists. You know, they, they are making, they are making, you know, money. None of them are profitable though, because part of their business model is to go out there and overspend, right? They, they pay for customers. And we've seen a pattern, especially in these open source companies that start as open um, or start more open, as they get more restrictive, it is more and more as the gap between profitability and revenue grows, right? So as they start losing more money, they start to become more restrictive. And you continually see this. Now, it's interesting because some people call it out, like the CEO of MongoDB, they're like, we did not get into you know, open source because it was collaborative, because we wanted contributions, because we wanted any of the community stuff. We, we got into it because it's a freemium model and people could try it and then it would drive additional business. Yeah. Now, they haven't been able to monetize that yet in a way that's profitable. Now, their stock price is outstanding. I mean, but you know, they're, they're a company that is making you know, less and less money. Um, which is an interesting dynamic and Elastic's in a very similar boat. Elastic and Mongo actually have very similar, you know, uh, top lines, right? Where the revenue is very similar, but the profitability, the, the margins that they're making are, are very low because of their sales and marketing costs. Yeah, I guess we're in a world where, I mean, you know much more about that than I do in that whole database piece, but I guess we're in a world where a company's value isn't necessarily measured in profitability. Right. And that's the kind of shifts that we were talking about that right back at the beginning when I, I was saying that as a lawyer joining an open source company, you have to unlearn what you know. I think there's a lot of unlearning around economics as well. It's something for Open UK, we issued a report last week and we've used the existing numbers in terms of developers, we've used existing formula on things like total cost of ownership, we've used existing economic principles, and we come out with multiple different values for open source in the UK economy, looking at GDP. And they go from something like 14 billion to 41 billion sterling. So you convert that into dollars for me, probably 50, 60 billion. That's a lot of money for a uh, country of 60 million people. Um, and we have somewhere between 126,000 and a couple of hundred thousand developers, I would guess, in the UK. So we're really 
a bit of a centre of excellence for open source, pretty much unsung. But what we want to do now is take a totally different approach. And we want to look at uptake of open source. And then we want to try and work out value, the value that that's generating. So moving away from this GDP focus, you know, total cost of ownership worked 10, 20 years ago on-prem. It worked because that's what the big software companies you were competing with used. Now the value is entirely different. I don't think you could look at lines of code in to value something. Um, so that's going to be a really interesting process for us. And we're going to work globally and collaborate and try and create something that others will use. And then for our own next stages of our report, we'll sort of then focus down locally and come up with figures, but create something that hopefully will become a standard across the industry if we get the right folks behind it contributing. And for me, that's sort of educating our government, educating our business folk to the importance of open, because I want to see them invest in it. And I want to see them invest in it both through laws and policy, but also in their business spend with an understanding how important it is. And it sort of leads on to what you were saying about education. So. I think we've done the generation behind us a bit of a disservice, right? For developers who grew up after 89, after the Linux kernel, we just kind of assumed that they would get it. Whereas those of us a little longer in the tooth, we went through a process where we were rejecting an existing system. We didn't want copyright. We didn't want, oh, we didn't, I guess we don't get away from copyright as a misstatement, but we didn't want proprietary. We wanted to move to this open licensing and it was a choice and an understanding and for some a battle and a war. And we just kind of expected the next generation to get it. And that was wrong. It wasn't fair. They're not going to just get it. And you also can't throw war stories down someone's throat. It's the last thing they want. Yeah. So, Back in the day when I was your age. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Can you believe we're old enough to be saying that to people? It's awful. Anyway, yes. so what we're doing is we're starting with school children, um, ages sort of 11 to 15. And we did a camp last summer. We, we gave away glove kits that are based on the BBC Microbit, the open source uh, Microbit which allowed children to do a course. And we gave away 3,000. We hope to do more this year. But we're, we're not just teaching them to code. We're teaching them about open. So this year, 10 lessons. Each lesson is themed on one of the OSDs, so one of the open source definitions. Very cool. And we're about to have a guest. Oh, yes. OK. <laughs> what's, the obligatory what's the... open source cat. That's OK. That's OK. Um, but here's the thing, and this this is interesting because, again, you mentioned that open source is not a business model. And I think that open source is closer to a social movement. It's closer to something that is designed to help the world get better, stimulate innovation. And, you know, and, and through that, then you can have the economic opportunities. You, you, you know, you look at some of the most profound technology advances in the last 10 years or 20 years. And almost all of them have open source at, at the core. You talk about cloud and how disruptive the cloud. The cloud does not exist without open source. The web does not exist without open source. Mm -hmm. You know, people using Facebook and Twitter, all open source behind the scenes. Yeah. And in fact, you know, Facebook is one of the largest contributors to open source projects. Uh, they like to tout the number of lines of code and the number of projects they've contributed and things mm -hmm. because they realize that, you know, by giving away things, you know, they, it, they can make other people better and other people can support and help 
build what they're building. But everything that we cherish today has an open core root to it. Mm -hmm. And some of the world's largest companies were built on open source and built around that. And it was because it enabled that innovation. I like to use the example of, you know, when I was, when I was starting out in the database space, you know, you had Oracle, you had SQL Server, you had DB2, you know, a couple others mixed in. And as a college student, if you wanted to use those for any sort of project, oh, guess how much license fee that is, right? And yeah. so it completely shut that down. Mm -hmm. And having the capability to have, whether it was um, Postgres or a MySQL or one of these other databases, and then being able to get an Apache web server and to be able to use Perl and CGI and like, you know, or PHP later on, it enabled you to do things that would generally cost so much money. They, they were outside of your reach. Yeah, totally. And, and that inspired me. It inspired, you know, countless, you know, tens of thousands of others to develop and innovate the next generation. And, you know, throughout my consulting career, I've, you know, I started as a consultant. So my job was I would parachute into a place and fix their, databases and their, you know, their, their web servers and, you know, stuff and make sure that they ran correctly. But I look back at things that I influenced and it was, it was crazy how many, you know, uh, different applications or different situations that were influenced by work that I did or that colleagues of mine did. Um, you know, LinkedIn, for instance, we have a, a, a gentleman who helped LinkedIn with some stuff, you know, Facebook we've worked with for years, Twitter, you know, Amazon, you know, all these companies are, are companies that, you know, over the years um, have have hit scale issues. And, you know, the, the community, the open source community has, you know, embraced, you know, changes and helped fix and overcome those problems. I think it's really interesting. And I agree it's a social movement and a lot of it's very hard not to get swept up into it all, right? And to get caught up and to make your friends and to, to live a lot of your life around it once you engage. Um, it's definitely, definitely a social movement. I think it's also a collaboration methodology. And I think that methodology brings together highly intelligent people who want to achieve the same goals. And we've seen that go from being really tech focused, starting with the open source companies, becoming more general in tech. And now with digitalization, and I think this is only being accelerated with the pandemic, we're sort of seeing it become the submarine under the digital ocean. And it's what we want to draw out in our next phase. We're going to do a survey for a report and we're going to trick people into admitting they're using open source by asking different questions, different ways, because we really believe that a lot of people don't understand that they're using it and that it's really important to create that understanding. Not just because, you know, as you were saying, the internet's based on it, social media's based on it, the cloud's based on it. We're looking at AI and ML going forwards and whatever we haven't even thought of yet. And it's all going to be based on it. But it's only going to be based on it if we find ways to feed the developers, right? If they're, they're starving on street corners, they ain't going to be building your code. And that's about sharing. And that's going back to what we were saying with the revenue models and opening up the service layer in the cloud environment, because at this moment in time, that's the bit that needs fixed. I'm quite sure with AI and ML, it'll be something totally different and we'll have to work it out all over again. 
But I also think that is the beauty of this community, that you have this openness, we have these conversations, we'll collaborate, we'll work together and we'll try and have influence collectively. And I think it's pretty much because we're doing the right thing. But there's also this compelling business case that if something is needed and whether you are selling you know, gasoline or petrol to uh, a car owner or you're an energy company providing an EV charging point to a car owner, whether you're selling the snacks that go into their vending machines, whatever it is, every company is using technology. Therefore, every company is using open source. So you really need this to keep going. And you need to reduce the the number of different versions of everything there are. You, know, you don't want to take away choice and you don't want to take away competition, but you want to create a few good products that underlie, low down the stack and most stacks, as opposed to having everybody going off and spending the same amounts of money, creating multiple versions of things that just fall away over time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned you know your organization, Open UK, and the work that you're doing in different schools. Um, what led you to found that? Like, wh where did that idea come from? How did you, you know, start to move into that? And what's your goal? Where, where are you taking it? Oh, God, they're difficult questions. Um, oh, I asked the, I saved the difficult, <laughs> but all the, all the licensed ones were easy. We're oh, just, my goodness. Yeah. My goodness. Okay. Um, so the organization existed before I joined, but it hadn't really done much. And I was able to come on board and shape it which is why I joined. Um, that combined with Brexit, I bet Brexit's not a common answer in open source for you guys, but there was a lot going on across Europe. There's good engagement at the moment in the commission. And I was deeply concerned that the UK had been absolutely world leading 10 years ago with our policies and not a lot had happened. And I'd obviously developed this passion for open and I wanted to see that post Brexit, and as part of this bigger geopolitical shift stuff that we're seeing across the globe, there's a, a real danger that if people don't stand up now and work together and make sure this collaboration keeps happening, that politics will get in the way. And none of us can afford that to happen if we want to have the right technologies in place in the future. We need to make sure that we can keep collaborating globally uh, and in the ways that we do and have the diversity that we bring. So that really inspired me to get involved when it, it came to the kids piece, we, we sort of worked out three pillars. So we, we work on the three opens, open source software, hardware, data. You know as well as I do, data is at the heart of everything these days. Hardware and software, hard to differentiate sometimes. So we brought the three opens together. We started to do activities and they fell into three pillars. So we bring the community together and we're not like a traditional organization that's an industry body. We look at the business of open in the UK. So anybody involved in any level, in any way in that business, whether they're working for a company in China or the US or whatever is welcome to participate. So anybody interested in open. So we bring that community together and it's huge. And with that power, that influence that that community can have, we look at legal and policy and we're getting really good engagement with government now. I have to say, I'm really delighted with that. But to ensure your community of the future, you've got to look at education and learning and make sure that the right skills are coming through. So it was kind of a no brainer for us to engage with kids. We want to create a high school certification and we want to do uh, a learning piece for apprenticeships, but we had to start by building some credibility. So we organized a competition last year and the pandemic shifted what we could and couldn't do. 
we had a little bit of money left and we we repurposed that into creating a course you'd love it it's animated it's 10 lessons 10 minutes long if you're like Very ADHD cool. like I am you know you can focus for <laughs> 10 minutes it's great and it teaches yeah. digital skills but what we found was we actually had more girls than boys and I, I really? think it was the approach using the glove kit um the kids glove kit is based on one that Imogen Heap and Ariana Grande use so you've suddenly got these, you know, musical heroes that are away from software, except they're not because it's a software glove that I, I think really engaged girls. So, yeah, it was really exciting. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you, you know, it's cool what you're doing locally in the UK and that it's that's opened up. And um, I know that each country has their own policies, their own thing. But we're in a truly global economy with all of this technology being globally influenced and so yeah. that's always a challenge um you know not only how do you grow you know what 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 the uk is doing but you know globally and how do you how do you ensure that the policies cross borders and 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 how do you make sure things um that work in one location work in others i mean yeah. that, that, that i can imagine that there's a lot of work that needs to be done across not only local governments but global bodies yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I was chairing uh, an advisory board for the UN for their innovation labs. The, the labs have now closed, so the advisory went, but we were doing some really good work globally there. And it fits very well with the SDGs and with the digital principles. Digital principle six requires everything to be open. So I, I think we'll see more and more of that collaboration from a, an Open UK perspective, we also joined a lot of the international organisations. You know, we're out in the OSI, Linux Foundation, Eclipse, etc., just to make sure that we keep working, you know, globally. It's very much about thinking locally, but then collaborating globally. Do you know, we should go back to SSPL that we really didn't discuss it. Do we have time? Well, we do, we do. But I, 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 because there's actually two things that I was thinking uh, that we can kind of move towards and close. So I am curious, you know, especially with SSPL and, you know, the changes, you know, uh, as we start to move to these new licenses, a whole bunch of things need to be rethought. And one of the things that's near and dear to my heart, especially being a contributor to open source for a really long time is um, contributor licenses. And, you know, you think about like Elastic and they had some 1600 contributors who overnight went from Apache to a what is a closed source license? I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, and then let's hear your general <laughs> thoughts on SSPL. Oh, I'm laughing because back in the day, I led a, an industry project called Harmony, and I got a really rough time over it. Oh, I really got really up on it. Oh yeah, you've not done your research. Um, Oh, I really, really had a hard time uh, from the As community. I go to Google right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, so it, it's an interesting one. I think there was a, a real concern that I was from Canonical and that we were going to shift to assignment, and actually we didn't, and we never intended to. So I think that it, I'm probably forgiven for it by now. Um, with contribution agreements, I think it's really important. We have to have a level of clarity uh, from a governance perspective. And if I'm asked now, I will say that my base understanding, and this didn't really exist when we were working on Harmony, uh, I think Richard Fontana at Red Hat really came up with it as license in, license out, makes the most sense. Um, 
some lawyers will argue that you need to have assignment because you have to have it in certain jurisdictions. You have to have everybody agreed to be able to bring litigation. It's not everywhere and I don't think it's enough. So I think an inbound license is enough. I definitely would never say assignment. The problem with the contribution agreement in the format that you've seen with uh, Elastic is exactly what you're talking about, that you have 1,600 people who signed up to a contribution agreement doing something that they thought was innocuous and now it's proprietary. And that's really not what they committed to. Right, and then that that is the problem. It was always the concern, but you know, you're really seeing it happen with these VC-backed companies now. So I would suggest that license in, license out, possibly using the DCO, the Developer um, Certificate of Originality that the Linux Foundation championed and which is used for the Linux kernel. I think that's probably a good way to go at this point. Okay. And so now we can move, you know, that we talked about one of the outcomes of SSPL. Yeah. Why is the SSPL bad for open source and bad for business? Oh, that's a bit of a statement. Um, I, I don't know if it's bad for business if it's your business. Uh, what I think is oh, bad about okay. it, uh, what I think is bad about it is that it has been sort of window dressing. It's probably a nice way to put it. So Commons Clause, SSPL, uh, I think it's called Fair Licensing, they're all lobbying for this third way that we talked about earlier, but they're not being really clear and transparent with people. So I was a lawyer for 25 years. I can assure you that I have worked on a hell of a lot more that's proprietary than open in those 25 years, but I have never come across a proprietary license that had its name and had that name public because that implies the commons, that implies something you share. And whilst it's not a bad idea to standardize proprietary licensing, that's not the goal here. It's about creating a suite of proprietary licenses and sort of passing them off to people as if they're open, right? It's a little bit sneaky. And I really have a problem with that. I, I, I think it's fine to have a proprietary license, but just be clear. If you look at the website around the Commons Clause, even today, it says you should not call this open source. It doesn't say it is not open source, right? And that's just wrong. And for the, the OSI to come out and make a statement that a license is not open is unheard of, right? It, it, the fact that it, it was causing so much confusion, they felt they had to do that, really says it all. Well, and it's interesting because I have seen that even even Elastic has said we're no longer open source, yeah. but they change it to we're open. Mm -hmm. So they drop the source part, but leave the open. Yeah, which is it, which is a weird thing because it is a bit of a marketing spin, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, well, if 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 OSI won't certify, we'll still be open. Mm -hmm. In a different way so it, yeah. it's trying to redefine the word open and you know take that as a much broader meaning well it's an interesting one because the osi don't have a trademark on it right they don't have an open source yes. trademark and i think if it had been applied for earlier before it became something that was in common usage they probably would have got it but you can't trademark something that's already in um, common usage and that it, situation so things like the, the term hoover which we use here to mean vacuum you know they lost its trademark over time because it became common parlance um 
And it's such a pity because you have Elastic pursuing a trademark claim against AWS on one hand and then on the other sort of playing around with something that really ought to be trademarked. We have a, a concept of unregistered mark here in the UK that I don't think the US has. And to me, it sort of feels like the, we should regard open source as a, an unregistered trademark and we should stick to what it means and just be really clear on it. And I think, again, we have to take ownership and responsibility as a community, as a sector, as an industry, however you want to categorize us. And we all need to get behind this and just be absolutely clear on what we mean by it. And that when anybody talks about open in another way, that that's not open source. And here is what open source is. And if it's open in another way, you're not going to get these same benefits, whether you're a VC or anybody else. It's a good idea. So Amanda, let me give you the final say. So is there something else that you would like to to, to talk about. Um, we've got a little bit of time left. I wanted okay. to. Okay. Um, what else can we talk about? Well, I, I'm not trying to force you to. No, I'm just thinking. Talk. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. <laughs> we've covered a lot. Um, we have. It's been a fun hour so yeah. far. So. Hmm. We've talked about the book. Do you want to talk more about the book? Is that interesting? Um, what would you talk about? She says, deflecting oh. the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we we have covered a, quite a bit of ground. Mm. I think, yeah, I think we're 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 we're, we're probably, probably good. I mean, yeah, we, we've I talked about so. the SSPL, yeah, um, and we've talked about the licensing changes. So, mm -hmm. and we've talked about Open UK and your mission and what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Uh, I guess. So, the how other can people thing get that, involved? That's interesting. Oh. Sorry, the only other thing that I was thinking that might be interesting is to talk a bit about community and what the pandemic's doing to it. And, you know, where we think things are going. So I don't know what you're seeing in the U.S. versus what we're seeing here. And I don't know if that's of interest. Well, so when you define community, community is an interesting word, mm -hmm. right? Because community is just like open. It can be used to hide a multitude of sins. Absolutely. Um, and so... You know, when we talk about like the community, especially the open source community here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or that I've seen globally, mm -hmm. um, I think right now one of the things that's 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 hurting us is the lack of travel and the lack of being able to see one another. In exactly. Um, open source, the open source community is a very social bunch. Um, everybody that I have ever worked with in open source companies, it is like a big extended family. Yeah. And, you know, when you go to conferences, when you go to, you know, um, dev meetings, when you go to these different places, it's like a reunion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being remote is great. And I think everyone has learned over the years, especially in open source, that you can do a lot of collaboration remotely. You can get a lot done remotely. But the two or three times a year that you do get to see those other people is invaluable. And it drives projects forward in three, six, 12-month sprints. And that has been something that I know that I have sorely missed. But I have seen other people miss that as well. Because there are people who are looking to contribute to projects who don't know anyone. Yeah. And they're having a more difficult time getting involved. Because, you know, they haven't met that and, and made those personal contacts. Because a lot of times what you'll see is someone come up to you in a conference and talk to you and say, like, hey, that was a great session. How do I do more of this? How, you know, can yeah, you, you know, exchange, exchange emails, exchange Twitter handles. Mm -hmm. 
there's a lot there that we're missing. And we've tried to replace it with virtual. Doesn't really work as well. It's okay. Um, as I say, as we have a virtual conference coming up, uh, well, you know, like, today, right? but yeah, yeah, but that's what we are in the, the, the world we live in today, you know, and so you're doing the best you can given the circumstances, but there needs to be a lot more, um, you know, collaboration than we can do right now. And a lot more face-to-face interaction. You need to have the collisions. You need to have people sitting at the pub after, you know, the, the talks or, you know, working on the roadmap together, being in the same room, reading the body language, you, you know, and just getting to know one another. Because again, you know, we talk about open source being a social movement. The social aspect is so important. Absolutely. You want to work with people who inspire you. You want to work with people you know. You want to collaborate. Um, if it's just some nameless bot that you're sending code into, it just, yeah, it does. It, it, it's not as you know, satisfactory. It's not as, it, it doesn't give you the same sense of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I think that it's something that I, I've seen as, as a, as a, something that hurts us. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, what, what have you seen? Um, we have an advantage and we don't have many advantages, but we have an advantage by being geographical. So for example, we had our report sponsored and we were able to send lunch out to people. So we, we literally have held three lunches and we've had a restaurant deliver food to people and they've sat around a table together virtually and broken bread. Bread's featured a lot today for some reason, but broken bread. And I think that it builds relationships in a different way. You know, it, it's not the real world. It's not what we're all used to. But I think that social interaction is absolutely critical. And trying to find more ways of getting those engagements and allowing that collaboration. Um, I, I think what's interesting is uh, I've, like you, probably worked from home for a long time, but now I live at work, and that's a totally different way of being. Yeah. And trying really to get is. people out it, of and, that and engaging with each other is really hard. Yeah, and I've talked to some people who, like I've seen their collaboration go down mm-hmm. um, and, you know, what they've, they've, they've contributed, and I've asked them why, and it's like, well... I'm at my desk 24 by seven. I just can't spend the extra time at my desk. Yeah, no, I totally understand. And, 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 and it has, has hurt that, so. Yeah, we, I mean, I think Fostem did pretty well in January with the, did, the yeah. virtual event. I mean, they had about 8,000 people, which is pretty good going, but I assume many of them didn't have the bits that you and I are talking about that we missed, the running into someone in the, the hallway and the two minute conversations with someone who you consider a friend because you see them six times a year for two minutes. You know, yep. it's that bit that we're missing. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, Amanda, it's been great chatting with you. I hope that you had fun. Uh, Indeed. And I hope to do it again in the future. Uh, there's, there's always, you know, fun topics for us to discuss and you're always welcome to, you know, call me up and say, Hey, there's this interesting thing. Let's talk about it. Oh, we will do. Definitely will do as time goes by. Thanks very much for having me on today. All right. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for being on the Hoss Talks Foss podcast. (laughs) 